Hey, welcome to the show, everybody, for the second of two Halloween episodes. Um, I want to say the schedule got a little funky this month because um, uh, the uh, I had a reschedule last minute and stuff like that, but getting all caught up now. So we, we made sure to still get we're getting four episodes out still for October and typically they're coming out on Wednesday. We just got a little off course, uh, this month. So I was trying to line up all sorts of exciting, fun things for you guys like these two Halloween episodes also was going to have Duncan Trussell on the show. We had to reschedule that last minute. And so when I'm taking a, a bit of a I'm traveling around, I'm actually going to be seeing Duncan in Vegas for uh, area 15, a meet Delic uh, conference that I'm emceeing. If you happen to be in Vegas, November 5th and 6th, check that out. Um, additionally, there's, uh, it, it, but anyway, re- regardless, he'll be on in like December or something. Um, and additionally, I was going to, it's the 20th today, which as you know, is International Sloth Day. <laughs> I had a sloth researcher lined up, and uh, th- this this happens all the time. You guys don't realize how you don't ever have to see how often these things kind of get moved around and rescheduled and stuff. But uh, just wanted to bring it up because we missed an episode in the first week of October, and um, and once in a while we miss a week here or there but pretty on track right now have a bunch of episodes in the bank this show is supported by patreon go to patreon.com slash shane moss to support the show definitely need your help there's costs involved in doing this show and that is how I pay those costs. So that would be terrific if you could help out. Um, in terms of um, some touring and stuff, if you want to listen to the end of the show, I can kind of sort through a few of my ideas for what I'm going to be doing in terms of touring coming up and uh, share a few ideas with you and other things that I have going on. So make sure and listen to the end of this episode. But if you don't go there, get to Patreon. This is ad free. Not only is this ad free, but I barely even do this anymore. I barely even get on here and beg you for Patreon support anymore. Um, because I, I don't want to hit you over the head with it, but I'm, been mentioning it every few three to four episodes or so and so if you appreciate all of this ad free typically completely uninterrupted content and learning all of these awesome things and great guests like today support on patreon thank you are we yes where are we here why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm very excited for another very special Halloween episode. This is a fun thing that uh, I didn't do a Halloween episode in eight years of the show. Now you get two this year. So I'm very excited. Uh, Joining me today is all the way from, where are you again? Denmark. 
Denmark, all the way from Denmark, Matthias Clayson, everybody. Thank you, Matthias, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, so you are the director of the uh, Recreational Fear Lab. That's right. Can you talk about uh, what is the Recreational Fear Lab? Well, first of all, it's awesome. Uh, second of all, it's a <laughs> it's a research unit um, at Aarhus University, where I work. Uh, it's the second largest university in Denmark, a big research institution. And um, I've been working with horror for a long time, but I got a substantial grant that allowed me to establish the lab and hire some really good people. So the lab uh, is in the world to help us get a better understanding of when fear is fun. Yeah. Uh, this is a little bit of a paradox of, of fear being kind of an evolved mechanism to keep us out of danger and whatnot. And so it, it's not necessarily, uh, much like pain is a sensation that keeps us from walking on a bad leg or, or touching that burner or whatever mm -hmm. fear is, often has that same role. So why in the heck would any organism want to add more fear to its life? Right. That's the big question. And if you look in a psychology textbook, you'll see fear described as a negative emotion, as an emotion that, you know, lowers life quality and that people try to keep out of their lives. But that's evidently not the case because we do plenty of things that do, in fact, um, stimulate fear and pain. I mean, not so long ago, I grew my own chili peppers and ate them with great delight, but also great pain. Yeah. Actually, yeah. you know, pain twice. That's that's the thing about chilies. They burn twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, I had a, a, a bit of that earlier this summer. Um, I yeah. So so what's going on there? What's uh, why would why would a person want to be scared? Right. Um, I think it's only a paradox on the surface, really. I mean, horror researchers talk about the paradox of horror uh, to describe the strange phenomenon of people seeking out entertainment that seems to be designed to scare people. I mean, the very name of the genre is a negative emotion, so-called uh, horror. It's a compound emotion consisting of a combination of fear and disgust. Um, but actually, if we ask, if you ask people, and we did ask people, um, what emotions do you expect to feel when you watch a horror movie? They will say fear and horror, but if they're horror fans, they will also say, you know, enjoyment. So it's not just about um, walking into the movie theater to catch the latest installment in The Conjuring or whatever and being terrified out of your mind. It's also about finding pleasure in that um, strong uh, emotional stimulation. So, you know, for most people, actually most people is not, people used to think that horror was a kind of niche phenomenon that appealed only to a tiny minority of maladjusted male teenagers. But that's not the case. It's most people and they seek it out because they find it uh, enjoyable. Hmm. So you're not a freak if you like horror movies. You're actually more of a freak if you don't like horror movies. <laughs> really i might be a little more of a freak. I, I i will say there are horror movies that i've enjoyed through the years i think uh i think the saw i think blair witch um maybe paranormal activity i i, I think the 
the found footage stuff got me when that was new to the scene. Um, and, uh, but I, I think the, the reason why I didn't like much of horror was not because, uh, not because I was scared, but a lot of times I just found it a little silly and, uh, it just didn't do it. So, so when it actually gets me, I do, I do enjoy it, which I, I imagine that's the same for most anybody. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, horror is, uh, really, it's a genre that's soaked in misconceptions and prejudice and biases. Um, and a lot of people think that horror movies are aesthetically uninteresting, psychologically harmful and morally problematic. And sure, some horror movies are all of those things. Maybe not psychologically harmful. I mean, that's that doesn't seem to be the case. But there are many stupid, even silly horror movies. And the whole genre was in a kind of a slump from the mid-90s until uh, not so long ago. But something really in- interesting things have been happening over the past seven or eight years where there has been sort of a rehabilitation of the horror genre with an explosion of ambitious, well-made, intelligent horror movies. So somebody who associates horror movies with silliness and, you know, masked killers chasing big-breasted scream queens, they might want to check out some of the new stuff to revise their understanding of the genre. Yeah. Oh, well, there was was a little bit of, I I feel like within that dip, horror movies also started becoming a little more self-aware and making fun of themselves, too, with like the... Cause, cause I think that the first evil dead movie was kind of meant to be serious. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they were like, Oh, that wasn't, <laughs> that was, people were laughing when they were in the theater. So then they were like, well, let's use that. Let's, let's just lean into that. Yeah. And, and uh, that's true. That was, I think like mm-hmm. Shaun of the dead and those. So anyway, yeah. what are you going to say? Yeah. It's just, I was going to agree with you that the, uh, there have been a whole bunch of self-aware kind of postmodern horror movies that have very um, consciously played with genre conventions like the Scream movies or The Faculty or Cabin in the Woods or um, many such films that, you know, they both want to scare people, but they also want to make fun of the usual scare tactics. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... And, and by the way, you also have a book, A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Why'd you write that book? Sure. Uh, that came out very recently. Um, and I wrote it because my editor at Oxford University Press suggested that I write it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then, you know, the idea really grew on me and I thought it was a very fun project. And the purpose of the book is... It's basically to mobilize the science of horror to address the concerns that somebody might have if they're interested in horror movies, but also kind of nervous about them. And so what I did for researching the book initially was I asked people on social media uh, to tell me why they were nervous about horror. And so the responses that I got fell into these categories. For example, many people are they enjoy horror movies, but they really hate the jump scares. They're very nervous about the jump scares. Some people are nervous about the nightmares that very often come after a horror movie. Uh, some people are nervous about kids and young people watching horror movies. 
some people are nervous about the moral implications of horror movies. And so I wrote the book uh, divided into chapters that address each of these concerns and sees what what we can what we can say about the concerns from the perspective of science. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, because at first it, I was thinking, well, why would why would someone necessarily want to train themselves to like a genre of of movies that they don't like? Just pick the things that you do like. There's plenty of entertainment out there. Yeah. Uh, I, I think something that uh, really resonated with me within that was was uh, the parental fears, mm. um, uh, especially and and. Uh, and parents um, being overly concerned that, like, oh my gosh, my my child's watching this movie with demons in it. Is it is that okay? Is that morally okay? Mm. What's uh, could you talk about that uh, aspect of your book a bit? For sure, yeah, it's something I've seen often when I, I do a lot of public lecturing, and um, sometimes you know horror fans will come to a lecture because they're interested in the psychological uh, underpinnings of horror. But more often it will be parents and grandparents and so on who don't really understand why their kids or grandkids play horror video games or go to haunted attractions or watch slasher movies. And for the very long time, there has been a lot of moral concern over the behavioral and psychological moral effects of scary entertainment on the youth. I mean, this goes way back hundreds of years. And it really, um, I won't say exploded, but came to a point maybe in the 1950s with the horror comics in the US um, that supposedly, you know, the horror comics that were very popular with kids and that supposedly led to juvenile delinquency. It led to um, hearings and uh, a lot of public discussion and eventually a self-imposed censorship in the comics industry. Um, and then again in the 1980s, following um, prominent scary movies like Jaws and The Exorcist, uh, both of which came out in the 70s and both of which scared a lot of people. You know, people were fainting and vomiting in fear at The Exorcist and they refused to go to the beach after having seen Jaws. And that led to, that led to uh, lots of people being concerned about uh, young impressionable moviegoers watching those movies. And then when Gremlins came out in the early 80s, you know, that movie was, um, I think in the American movies rating system, it was allowed for kids at the age of seven and above. And Gremlins is actually pretty scary. I saw it again recently and was surprised at how dark and, 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 and freaky that movie is. And so that led to a lot of debate with Spielberg actually being um, an advocate for the new PG-13 classification in the MPAA rating system. Um, mm. So for a long time, there has been concern about uh, kids and young people watching horror movies and not being able to handle them, you know, suffering short or even long-term effects like nightmares and behavioral disturbances and sleeping with the lights on and those kinds of things. Uh, and there was a lot of research into that in the 1980s. Almost all of it focused on negative effects. Um, and a consequence was that researchers 
mainly from a media psychological tradition, completely overlooked any positive effects that horror movies might have. The ways in which teenagers use horror movies for meaningful social interaction, or for getting acquainted with their own negative emotions, or testing their boundaries, um, improving their capacity for emotion regulation. So those concerns, I think, about kids watching horror movies come from a good place, but they're, at least to a certain extent, sort of misplaced. Um, kids are not as impressionable as many people think. And they're actually, there is research to suggest that kids are better at making the distinction between fiction and reality than, than we, ten we, we tend to think. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it does... I, I can see, you know, the, that sort of stuff, of course, as I, when I was a kid, drove me crazy. I wanted to see whatever movie I wanted to see. I didn't want my parents or anyone else telling me what was appropriate. But, um, you know, I, I can see from, you know, some, some grandmother's point of view of, uh, you know, that sits around watching the Hallmark channel and, and it's kind of this intuitive thing. I, I watch this thing that I like to imagine myself in this scenario of finding this love at Christmas or whatever. And so why in the world would a kid want to um, uh, play a zombie video game or something like that? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, and that, that is bound to look weird from an outside perspective. If you're a parent or a grandparent looking over the shoulder of a kid who is sitting in front of a PlayStation, you know, pressing buttons manically and uh, shooting up zombies or whatever, um, you, you're going to ask that question. But there is a lot of pleasure to be had for most people in, um, in imaginative threat simulation, you know, in through the imagination, um, immersing yourself in a scary world. I mean, they, they, yeah. they seem to be um, designed to find enjoyment in that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I guess you don't see parents freak out when a kid's playing the floor is lava or, or, or something like, Hey, don't simulate playing with lava. You're going to be inclined to jump around in lava. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, interesting. There's, um, it, it, I have a few thoughts occurring to me, but, uh, one is that, um, I wonder how much of it is just something that is new. I mean, don't, isn't it always kind of the cliche that, you know, parents don't understand the kids music these days and, and, uh, and when video games are new, I remember showing someone, I remember showing some, like, uh, one of my parents' friends, um, my Nintendo when I was like seven or something and I was playing duck hunt and she was like, oh, I don't want to shoot the ducks. Can it be the clay pigeons instead? I'm like, well, it's not ducks. <laughs> it's like it was so confusing to me that like as a, a six or seven year old or whatever, I understood that it wasn't real ducks that I was shooting. But to an, an adult, this was some moral violation or something for them. And uh uh, so, it, so you feel like 
I mean, it is an interesting subject, though, that how much do kids intuitively understand what is and is not real and and what because there there has to be some things that are influential. I mean, you just you just mentioned that, uh, you know, people would see Jaws and not want to go to the beach. So there there has to be instances in which this is having kind of a uh negative impact the the inability to understand uh fiction from reality is is having a negative impact on some people right and even being able to make that distinction you know a scary movie can still have a negative impact i mean if you ask people random people on the street um do you have do you have a memory of being scared really badly you know traumatized in a way by a scary movie in your childhood Probably 19 to 95% will say, yes, I vividly remember watching this or that movie when I was, it's usually around the age of 11. Um, and that scared me and I had nightmares and I, you know, slept with the lights on and so on. And so that's true. Um, and I'm not saying that we should, you know, take kids in kindergarten and show them the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, that would be a bad move. Uh, but there is a case to be made for also looking at positive effects. I mean, if you went to if you went to a kindergarten and you interviewed all the kids on the playground and you asked them, have you ever gotten hurt on a playground? Every kid is going to say yes. And they will have a vivid memory of some time they got hurt on the playground. They fell down or they got sand in their eye or uh, the bully hit them with a plastic shovel or whatever. And so if that's the only question you ask, you're going to walk away with an understanding that play is dangerous and ought to be outlawed. Uh, if you yeah. don't ask about, you know, the meaningfulness of play or positive effects. And I think something similar is going on with recreational fear and kids. Um, that many parents and teachers and so on are very uh, hung up on protecting kids from negative emotions. Um, we don't want, as parents, we don't want our kids to feel fear and anxiety and dread and terror, uh, which may actually be a bad thing because they don't get any practice or any experience with those emotions. Hmm. Now, when you said that um, some of this controversy goes back 100 years, could you dig into that a little bit? I, I mean, I, I know... Uh... There was controversy around the the Harry Potter books. Uh, I I remember when they came out and, and people burning them or banning them from schools mm. or or whatever. So I imagine that there were even more extreme cases of that as you go back a few centuries. Right. Um, I think in the Victorian age, so that would be the late nineteenth century. Um, there was a lot of public concern in the UK over a type of literature that was known as uh, Penny Dreadfuls because they were stories that came in these installments and you bought one installment at a time and it, they cost a penny and the subject matter was dreadful. So Penny Dreadfuls. Um, it was not so much kids back then. It was more, you know, unenlightened working class people reading frightening and thrilling stories about uh, uh, murders and uh, supernatural forces and whatever that would um, concern kind of the cultural elite. Uh, what did it do to those uh, working class people reading those scary stories? Uh, but, you know, concerns over kids specifically, I think the best example would be those horror comics from the 1950s. 
Um, and then, of course, you have local or kind of circumscribed um, instances like Harry Potter or the books of Stephen King or Arl Stein. Or um, there are many examples of scary entertainment being deemed non-appropriate to kids. Hmm. I would love to jump way further back in time. Um, and, and I don't, I'll let you choose your own adventure and how we actually get there. But um, one thing that I'm very, very interested in is, is we talk quite a bit about evolution on this show. And I would, I would really love to uh, understand some of the, uh, it, I don't know how much time you've spent uh, um, considering this, but I, I imagine you, you've, uh, you've done a bit of it. Uh, some, some of the evolution of why these things are scary or, or why certain, uh, the, the evolution of uh, zombies or werewolves or where the, I mean, spiders certainly makes sense that, uh, that our ancestors or even our non-human ancestors would, would have evolved in a version from, uh, something that might potentially be poisonous and even when you're say in america when you're very 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 unlikely to come across a poisonous spider you still have this evolved kind of intuitive sense to stay away from this thing and and that uh if, if you're creating a holiday around scary stuff that then sort of makes sense to throw some spiders in there um <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that subject sure yeah um i have spent some time considering the kind of the evolved or biological underpinnings of uh scary entertainment and horror monsters i actually wrote a book about it it's called why horror seduces um so i think uh really to understand the structure and the functions of horror entertainment, you have to take into account human evolution and the natural forces that sort of shaped our species. Uh, because many, many horror monsters, probably most horror monsters, don't really reflect the kinds of things that play a prominent role in modern mortality statistics. They reflect the kinds of things that were dangerous to our ancestors. So the giant spiders and the huge, you know, the serpents, probably the snake as the archetype of evil known from the Bible and, uh, you know, scary scenes in fantasy literature and really reptiles as the embodiment of evil. I mean, that makes sense from a, an evolutionary perspective if you consider the millions of years of a co-evolutionary arms race between mammals and, and reptiles. I mean, there probably are most ancient enemy and they're still mm. what 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 comes to symbolize evil in popular culture um and also the fear system itself i mean the emotion of fear the emotion of anxiety the emotion of disgust those are all functional responses to danger that were built into human nature and that are exploited by frightening entertainment um, so i agree that it makes a lot of sense to um to kind of adopt an evolutionary perspective on on horror. Mm. Um, I I would love to hear more. I would I would love to hear a few more examples and get into this a little more. I I I was 
I, I did some very, very uh, hasty origin of Halloween research. And there was, there was a few things like that, that, that caught my attention. I, I tend to view things through an evolutionary lens. And so, so the stuff like uh, snakes and, and spiders and things I, uh, I've, I'm especially fascinated by, but it, there were some more modern uh, things that grabbed my attention, which uh, th- there was at least this this uh, this person was presenting a case um, that there was uh, when grave digging became a kind of popular thing in the, I, I don't know five hundred years ago or something like that. I imagine it was. Uh, uh, popular before that but there was people would dig up a somewhat fresh grave and having never seen a corpse before and not understanding decomposition kind of see this person that's still like their hair's still been growing and they're they're like squirming a bit because things are digesting them that they're they can uh air can get trapped and corpses can moan Mm -hmm. and and perhaps that that fed into uh some of the ideas of maybe zombies or ghosts or the undead um uh, so I, w- I would love to hear anything like that 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 you could share that you know a little bit more about. Right. So so what you're describing uh, reminds me. I think you're probably referring to the work of a historian called Paul Barber, who wrote a book mm. called Vampires, Burial, and Death, uh, which is one of my favorite nonfiction books. It's it's really brilliant, and he's trying to understand why people suddenly why 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 in Europe in the Early 18th century, um, the 1720s and 1730s, there was like a, a wave of vampire fear kind of uh, drenching all of Europe. People were terrified of, 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 you know, the dead returning from the grave and sucking the blood of the living. And uh, he explains it with reference to natural decomposition processes, exactly what you were describing. Mm-hmm. That, that back in, you know, 300 years ago, if people in your village started dying off mysteriously, um, the explanation that came to mind was supernatural. Because back then, 300 years ago, people didn't know about invisible microorganisms making us sick. This was before the germ theory of disease. So they right. didn't know that disease is actually, you know, tiny little pathogens that travel through touch or the air. Um, and so they thought, okay, people are dying mysteriously in my village. Probably some kind of supernatural agent is at play here, and so there has to be some explanation. It can't be random. There has to be a pattern. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, yeah that that need for predictability and control is a, a really strong driving force. It would seem in a lot of uh, mythology and superstition. For sure, yeah. I think the the the, the human brain really detests. Um, a lack of, you know, if there is no cause, if there is no purpose, no meaning, no agent behind things. So it comes very naturally to us to assume that things happen for a reason and that, you know, some agent caused things to happen. Uh, A lot Mm. of people struggle with the idea of a kind of mechanical, dead, indifferent universe. The great, you know, terrifying Darwinian uh, revelation. Yeah. Um, so 300 years ago, people didn't know about the germ theory of disease. 
and they thought, you know, people are dying uh, around me, and so probably the first the first person to die is somehow the cause of it. And sometimes they would dig up the grave, and they would not find, you know, a decomposed corpse. They would find a corpse that was kind of bloated and had fresh blood apparently running from the mouth, um, suggesting to them that this was a vampire that was responsible for the other deaths. And so, like you said, they would sometimes wow. stake the corpse. And what you do, if you have a corpse that is bloated because decomposition gases have been trapped inside the corpse, like when you blow up a balloon, um, if you then stake the corpse, you force those gases past the larynx, the organ-producing sound, and that, that creates a kind of moan or a groan. Not because, you know, you have a vampire <laughs> on your hands, but for purely uh, mechanical, physical reasons. Yeah. Um, and wow. it also, it looks like, you know, it looks like the beard and the hair and the nails are growing after death. They're not really. Yeah. It's just um, the body becoming demoisturized. And so the skin kind of contracting, making it look like uh, the beard is growing. And also, and you see this too, and sorry to interrupt, but you, you see this in, in the movies with vampires, they'll have the long nails a lot of times. Exactly. It's so interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's a very kind of natural explanation for um, previous widespread belief in vampirism, which, you know, to some, to this day still exists in some parts of the world. But um, 300 years ago, I think most people believed in vampires. Not because they were stupid, but because um, that was what their intuitions told them. And, you know, culturally transmitted um, myths and folk tales uh, supported their belief in, in vampirism. Well, it seemed like the Black Plague really ramped things up. I, I've also been, uh, since COVID, looking into quite a bit more of the history of, of pandemics. And it, it seems, you know, again, you have you have a, a lack of control and predictability uh, really um, maxing out <laughs> on people. You see a lot of... Superstitious. It's all. It's always interesting that that the human mind tends to tends to kind of uh, uh, there's like the uh, an almost an OCD response to randomness. It's it's like combating randomness with randomness in a way. Like, oh, what if we knock on wood or something like that? Maybe that'll fix this incredibly complex, random, chaotic system. Um, uh, that, you know, I, I was thinking in, in related, he, I have a feeling that I might be off on this guess, but re relating to vampires, I was the, the three major players in zoonosis are bats, rodents, and primates. And although you don't see, um, primates and well, I guess there is like, some scary monkey stuff here and there but but and you'll see and you'd see rodents in a haunted house uh but bats are a big player and i i was wondering if if that had to do with similar aspects of the uh that you know spiders and and snakes uh we evolved an aversion to them it i i wonder if that that would necessarily be the case, or but then there's also like 
it, it seems like there was there was just like a lot of human transporting through animals sort of uh witches turning into black cats uh werewolves and stuff like that was was werewolves like a actually let me before i go on why don't you take on what i've said so far right i think many of those um species that you mentioned before like the bats and the rats the rodents and so on um, they elicit disgust rather than fear in most people. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a spider, I think for people who really hate spiders, and I would consider myself one of them, it's a combination of fear and disgust. The predators are fear, you know, the big cats. Um, they're not disgusting. So I think the reason why some of those species are associated with evil is because, you know, they have that disgust eliciting potential. So in Dracula, you know, Bram Stoker's novel from the late 19th century, um, the evil vampire Count Dracula, Vlad Tepes, uh, he can turn himself into a bat and he's able to command the, the rats um, and he's associated with filth and uh, disgusting things to kind of um, make him an even more aversive, you know, agent of evil. What about werewolves? Is that like a rabies situation, potentially? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know a lot about werewolves, um, but I think it's another example of a kind of pre-scientific attempt to provide a meaningful explanation to otherwise, you know, chaotic random things like uh, sudden outbursts of violence or maybe even mental disease. Maybe there is somebody in your village who has a mental health problem that makes them occasionally um, aggress against other people. And so maybe werewolfism would be a um, kind of a causal explanatory framework that would make sense of that sort of thing. Um, and also the very idea of a werewolf is just interesting because it's a, uh, many horror monsters really violate our intuitions about the world. Many horror monsters combine traits from different separate boxes. You know, in our minds, we have a box for humans. We have a box for non-human animals. We have a box for things. And when we come across something, we put it in one of the boxes. So for example, my glass of water would go into the thing box. And I have certain expectations of things in that box. I don't expect this to have um, dreams and ambitions and desires. I don't expect my glass of water to, to harbor a deep desire to kill me. You know, it might, but I, that's not the kind of thing I intuitively expect from a thing. Um, but if you start combining traits from those boxes, like if you imagine a glass of water that really wants to have revenge on you, it becomes a so-called minimally counterintuitive agent, which is interesting. It's inherently fascinating because it is a violation of those ontological boxes that we carry around in our heads. And so is a werewolf because it's human and also animal. It's able, it's a, it's a shapeshifter. It violates the laws of physics and that immediately grabs our attention. Mm. So I, I found you from a previous guest, Manveer Singh, um, 
hope I'm saying his last name correctly. And he, it, it did fascinating. It does fascinating, fascinating work on, uh, uh, witchcraft, other things as well. But, uh, as an anthropologist who observes witchcraft and I think is he in Indonesia, um, but regardless, there's. It, it was really interesting to hear that uh, there was witchcraft involved in kind of their court system, almost like instead of a judge, like a sorcerer type of, and and uh, and also just medicine healers, just the the people that you would call when you were uh, when you were sick to. Um, concoct remedies and stuff. And I, I know some of the, I, th I think uh, I read somewhere that a little bit of the history of alchemy um, too was related to early chemistry and kind of figuring out how to make armor. This was this incredibly valuable uh, skill. You, you were basically uh, your, your kingdom's arsenal was dependent on this alchemist that could figure out how to uh, shape metal and that sort of thing. And because of the value, a lot of these secrets, a lot of alchemists would hide their secrets and kind of write the instructions and codes and stuff. It's, and and it, it would something would take a few minutes to boil or whatever. And so you would read some passage of a book that would take that amount of time. And, and, you know, it seemed from the outside, it seemed like, Oh, they're saying these magic words to this, uh, to, <laughs> to this mixture or whatever, but really it was, it was just a, a way of timing the, the substance. Can you um, talk a little bit about that? It's not really anything I know anything about. Um, I do know a little bit about the relationship between alchemy and chemistry, but that's because I was a history of science minor, but that's like 20 years ago. I used to work as a, yeah, as yeah. a guide in a, in a history of science museum, and I was intensely interested in this stuff. And I remember that uh, Newton was, well, he's famous today for, you know, gravity and uh, his, his laws, but he was also a, an avid alchemist. Um, so, 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 so back then, you know, in the, uh, in the Renaissance, um, there wasn't any conflict between alchemy and chemistry. Uh, I think alchemy was kind of the birthplace of what we today would call chemistry, just like there was no conflict between astrology and astronomy. So most astronomers were also astrologists. Um, but that's a kind of, that has changed, of course. Mm hmm um and and what about uh did you in why horror seduces was there was there anything in there about witches at all no um for some reason i guess i overlooked witches uh i did talk uh. about many of the other kind of traditional horror monsters like zombies and ghosts and creepy clowns and uh the more kind of natural predators like the shark and jaws and so on but even though the, 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 there is actually a chapter on the Blair Witch Project, but I didn't talk, talk about the witch because there really is no witch in that movie. I mean, you mm -hmm. don't see the witch anyway. You just see these three kids running around in the woods in Maryland, um, terrified out of their minds and eventually dying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, 
So why exactly do you kind of going back to the beginning of this episode, there's normally if a person describes something as horrifying outside of recreation outside of like, I'm going to watch a horror movie. If you describe something that happened in your day as horrifying, it is almost without a doubt, a negative thing, (laughs) a very, very negative thing that has happened to you. So what's going on? So why the, uh, why the interest in it? Right. That's completely true. And so that's maybe why it seems so weird when horror movies are marketed on their scariness. I mean, that's a very common marketing strategy. Uh, You know, this is the scariest movie you will ever see. This movie will make you sleep with the lights on for three weeks. That's supposed to be high, high praise, right? Uh, That's a horror movie you want to see. But the thing is, um, we find pleasure in playing with fear. Uh, because yeah. we know it's not real. When you're watching a horror movie, you know there is no actual danger. Um, you know that it's just actors and special effects. Sometimes you forget. I mean, sometimes people do get overwhelmed with uh, horror. And that happened to some of those unfortunate people back in the 70s who fainted in fear over The Exorcist. And we see it also in... We do these uh, in the Recreational Fear Lab. We do uh, annual haunted house studies where we travel to a haunted attraction and collect data. And some of the guests who go to that haunted attraction, you know, they have to be carried out uh, or they have to be escorted out because suddenly for them, this engagement with recreational fear stops being recreational. So recreational fear turns into actual fear and they want out the, the fun aspect of it just disappears. And that phenomenon, when recreational fear becomes fear, is not very well understood, but that's something we're hoping to to study in the future. But but mm. to answer your question, um, I think it's about finding pleasure in playing with fear, in simulating danger. Like if if a parent pretends to be a monster, you know, chasing their kid through the apartment or the house and roaring, and the kid is screaming in delight, they know it's just mom or dad pretending to be a dangerous beast. But they also, you know, get a little bit, you know, aroused and frightened from simulating this um, uh, predatory situation. Mm. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, you wouldn't want to show up to your uh, corporate job or something and have the boss be like, OK, we got uh we're really in for a treat you're going to be up for three weeks straight after this this next project's a real nightmare there's a (laughs) there's all sorts of horrifying distribution issues for we're all going to be on edge here for at least three months Uh, no one's sitting there like ooh, i I love a good scare right but you introduce it into play and entertainment yeah. and it's this uh, benign way of of training kind of i guess your uh, fear stress response and yeah yeah and you know the you, you used the word nightmares just before and that's interesting because nightmares are very like horror movies in a sense 
um, except they're not pleasant. Nobody, nobody enjoys a nightmare. And I think it's because it's also a simulation. You know, it's a, it's a horror scenario that you're, that the dreaming brain cooks up for you, but you don't realize it's a simulation. It, you, you experience a nightmare in the first person, right? And you don't know that it's just, uh, that it's virtual and you have no control yeah. and there is no psychological distance. And those aspects seem to be crucial for you to find enjoyment in fear. So I think if somebody tied you to a chair and kind of forced your eyes open in a clockwork orange kind of way and made you watch, um, I don't know, hereditary. And you would never, I mean, we considered doing something like that, but we would never get it past the ethics research uh, board. Uh, <laughs> but that wouldn't be ple pleasure of it at all. I mean, you, you need to realize that uh, you chose this and you can control it. You can turn down the volume, you can leave the movie theater, you can even close your eyes if you get overwhelmed, which, by the way, is a terrible fear regulation strategy. Uh, we did a study also in a haunted house where we looked at the strategies people use to regulate their own fear and um, holding your hands in front of your eyes may be one of the most common fear regulation strategies, but it's also one of the least effective ones. Huh. What are some of the most effective ones? Uh, the most effective ones seem to be cognitive fear regulation strategies, meaning uh, strategies in which you somehow regulate your own thinking. For example, by reminding yourself that it's just a movie. That's a way to, to, uh, to um, sustain or increase psychological distance between yourself and the, and the scary stimuli. So if you're, if you're looking at the screen and there are terrifying and gross things happening to, you know, sympathetic characters, you remind yourself, this is not real. These people are not in danger. I'm not in danger. It's just special effects or CGI. And actually that's the same strategy we use intuitively if we watch a movie that has scary elements with a kid. We will tell them, you know, it's not real, it's just ketchup. Uh, there are people behind cameras and these are actors, there is no real danger. Or um, self-distraction seems to be a very effective fear regulation strategy. So think about something else. Think about an upcoming deadline or what you need to get for dinner tomorrow or you know, just remove yourself from the, from the scary place is also effective. Yeah. The distraction's an interesting one because I'm, I'm someone that I just got back into meditate. I go in and out of, uh, meditation practice and, and usually, um, meditation is all about, uh, noticing, observing, approaching with curiosity. Yeah. It's it's usually kind of uh, almost combating avoidant behavior in a lot of ways, and but it's tough to know in every context. I just I just gave blood um, last week, and when they were going to put the needle in, it was like, do I want to watch and see? Do I? I usually opt to look away and try to think of something else and, and distract myself. Yeah. I guess maybe, maybe distracting yourself from a chronic situation is, is maybe not terribly useful. Mm. Maybe if you're in a haunted house yeah. uh, or, or you're experiencing a, uh, uh, an acute 
uh, amount of pain um, from a, 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 a kind of transient injury or something. Mm-hmm. Distraction works really well, whereas if, if there's a persistent uh, issue in your life, pain or something at work or whatever, where the distraction is only going to go so far and you eventually need to um, kind of face it. Yeah, I imagine it might uh, even be counterproductive, but I wouldn't know, but that's a good point. What about um what about dreams and and nightmares? I'm I'm wondering uh sorry that I I actually didn't know about your book Why Horror Seduces and so I I didn't uh I didn't skim it or anything. It was did you go into dreams and nightmares in there at all because that's you know going going back to the uh dreams and nightmares are something that humans have always lived with but at the same time this need to understand and assign causality is there must have been a lot of confusion going on with it i mean to this very day there's so much dream interpretation Mm -hmm. that happens that people are into and uh there, there must have been a lot of situations, much like exhuming a, a corpse and and seeing it moving and thinking it's a, it, it, it must have been hard for people to. Uh, there must have been a lot of people along the way through history that had takes that 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 the dream or nightmare world was just as real as the waking life. Yeah, for sure. I think there are many historical examples of people assigning, you know, special meaning to dreams, including nightmares, seeing them as kind of messages from another realm or, um, and even today, as you say, it's very hard for most people to accept that dreams might just be a byproduct of memory consolidation processes, you know, basically the brain cleaning itself up. Um, I'm not sure that's the case though. I think, I think there is, um, convincing evidence to suggest that one function of dreams might be uh, simulation uh, and that nightmares specifically function as threat simulation. So the brain is forcing us to go through these horror scenarios like on average five times a week to keep our fear responses sharp and ready. Um, Mm -hmm. So yes, I have looked into evolutionary dream and nightmare research Uh, to see if that could tell me anything interesting about horror. Also because there are some really interesting links between horror and nightmares. And I mentioned before that they're kind of, they're kind of similar in being basically worst case scenarios or threat scenarios, but also because a very frequent byproduct of horror movies uh, is nightmares. People very often have nightmares after having watched an especially scary movie. And on the other hand, Many horror movies are inspired by nightmares. Many horror books are inspired by nightmares. Like the first so-called gothic romance from the late 18th century, a scary book called um, The Castle of Otranto was allegedly inspired by a nightmare. Uh, Frankenstein was inspired by a nightmare that Mary Shelley had. Um, Parts of Dracula seem to have been inspired by a nightmare. The Nightmare on Elm Street seems to have been inspired by nightmares. Um, So... There are some interesting links here. What's 
I would love to chat about horror movies. Um, I I need to apologize. I'm not much of a horror buff. I I haven't seen that many. But one thing that I think could be really interesting to some of uh, the people watching or listening to this, um, what are, what are some of the classic horror novels that uh, that hold up well mm. today? Well, um, the horror novel as a phenomenon is not, is only about 250 years old. Um, mm -hmm. whereas the horror tale is much older. So I think, I think people have been telling each other horror stories for as long as we have had the ability to construct imaginative worlds and convey them verbally. So ever since, you know, our ancestors started telling each other stories, uh, whether that's 20,000 or 50,000 years ago, they told each other horror stories. But horror novels that hold up well, I think many of the Victorian horror novels hold up really well, like Dracula. Dracula still works today. I mean, I teach it whenever I get a chance, and my students tend to enjoy Dracula. Also, Frankenstein, which is more than 200 years old, and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, the works of H.P. Lovecraft. He didn't really write novels. He was more into short stories, same as Edgar Allan Poe, another great American horror writer. Um, Stephen King, you know, my own personal favorite. I would recommend anything by Stephen King. So it's not, you know. Anything. Doesn't he have like hundreds of books? More like 60, <laughs> 60 odd. Uh, Say 60 odd. Yeah. There has to be a dud in there. <laughs> not from my perspective. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's. That's amazing. Yeah. That's He's, he, what an incredible mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would, I have plenty of recommendations, you know, from throughout the history of the horror novel. Um, I hate to jump around cause I, I do want to, I want to touch on movies as well, but it just makes me think as we were mentioning nightmares and children in play and parents chasing you around and, and it, it's kind of mimicking a predatory situation in a benign, playful way. We are such storytelling and I, I'm a comic. So many of us comics use exaggerations to make a point. Politicians use exaggeration, uh, exaggeration to make a point like what's next? This person's going to do this. We, we all tend to exaggerate to kind of make an impact. And, and as storytelling creatures, it seems like, you know, it, it's sort of the best stories are the ones that stick with you. And, and, and for, you know, for all of the, uh, as I'm sure, you know, as a, professor for all of the uh important wonderful lessons and information we can learn in life if you don't find a way to uh get it into people's heads to make it memorable um th then it, it's sort of useless and and so you can kind of you can kind of see this ramping up of the you, you start maybe um tightrope uh, le learning to tightrope walker or, or 
ride a unicycle or, or something that requires balance. And maybe you have a dream that you're on a tightrope between the Grand Canyon. It's this heightened, uh, I mentioned the floor is lava. It's this, this heightened but benign um, kind of simulation of uh, a kid jumping around, uh, learning their uh, kind of honing their fine motor skills by landing on the specific pillow and furniture uh, here and there. Where, whereas if it was just the game was jump around the pillows and not touch the floor, maybe you wouldn't quite care as much. You wouldn't put as much effort into it. Um, so you probably won't have an answer for this, but it's it's hard to know when there's a lot of utility to that and then and then once it uh and then once something becomes so salient that it almost like hijacks and runs away from itself now it's just salience for salience sake um you know whereas whereas i'm sure there's there were a lot of good lessons throughout uh horror myths and genres and stuff and uh and things that were conveyed and then there there were and then at a certain point, it gets kind of hijacked, much in the way that. Uh, see if I can explain this better. It we have a uh, we have a propensity to like sweet things because fruits packed full of uh, energy and rare in our ancestral environment, and now we have like fun dip and these things that that aren't good for us, but they hijack those same kind of systems that that were that came from really uh, from drives with a lot of utility mm-hmm. um any thoughts on that and kind of what's going on with some of the horror genre stuff yeah i think it's a really good point um and i think it does make sense to see horror as a kind of super normal stimulus along the lines of uh, fast foods or you know the kinds of things that we have concocted to really press those pleasure buttons that nature installed on us. Uh, horror is kind of the opposite. It's pressing the fear buttons. So you don't see regular, you know, the spiders that terrify me in my home, they're like this size of a, uh, of a quarter, maybe. In horror movies, they're 11 foot high. Uh, same with the snakes, you know, they're super normal. They're giant to more effectively push our buttons. But yeah. I don't think that means that the utility goes away. I mean, it's probably, yeah. it's probably... It's true that today we think of horror as entertainment, whereas historically horror has served important functions in terms of the cultural transmission of important ecological, social, psychological knowledge, uh, served an important function in terms of behavioral regulation. So if you wanted your kids to behave in a certain way, you would tell them an evocative, dramatic, compelling story about what happens if you stray from the path in the woods and meet a wolf, you know. Uh, don't stray from the path. Don't talk to wolves. They will eat you. Um, so, so cautionary tales had a very kind of clear didactic purpose in the past that may occasionally be carried over into modern-day horror stories. Uh, but there is that supernormal, um, exaggerated element to horror but that doesn't mean that they can't still carry important lessons. So we mm-hmm. talked about Stephen King before. So let me give a Stephen King example. Um, King has a, a, a story from, I think, the late 70s or early 80s called The Mist. And it was made into a movie. 
And the mist is about uh, a weird mist that descends over a small New England community. And then there are these horrifying Lovecraftian tentacled monsters hiding in the mist. And so we follow a group of people who barricade themselves in a supermarket uh, trying to escape those monsters. And the story is not really interested in the monsters. It's interested in what's happening within and between those uh, people barricading themselves in the supermarket. How are they coping with this sudden crisis? How are they cooperating? How are they interacting? Because they suddenly divide themselves into these factions and they start, you know, battling each other. And some of them are religious fundamentalists who want to sacrifice somebody to these terrifying monsters. And, and some of the others are not sure that that's a really good idea. So yes, there are these supernormal, extremely exaggerated, highly implausible monsters. But they're also very real, very psychologically realistic depictions of human interactions and human responses to sudden crisis. So I guess my answer to your question would be that it's sort of a mixture. Hmm. Hmm. What were, uh, what were some things that uh, when you were writing why horror seduces, because you, you write a book to kind of teach, but what were some of the things that are, or, transmit your information the things that you're interested but what were some of the things that you learned in writing that that uh uh that really grabbed you and stuck out oh that's hard to say because the book came out in 17 and i wrote it i think in 15 and 16 and okay. actually most of that book was based on research i had done before um so it was more the new book that came out a very nervous person's guide to horror movies uh that required a lot of sort of new research um uh, how about that one though yeah um i think some of the empirical studies that i've been involved in in recent years those have occasionally surprised me um some of the haunted house research that we have done i mean we did a really cool study uh, a few years ago, where we looked at the relationship between fear and enjoyment. Uh, and there is this, for many people, there is an assumption that that there is a linear relationship between fear and enjoyment in the domain of horror, so that the more fear people feel, the more they like it. Uh, and we tried to investigate this by getting all kinds of measures in this haunted house in Denmark. It's called Dystopia Haunted House, and it's the scariest haunt in Denmark. And we have a very fruitful uh, collaboration with this haunted attraction where they let us come and collect data and and uh, we get some really fascinating insights. But for this study, we mounted surveillance cameras in some of the scariest rooms with uh, infrared light so that we could film in the dark to really get you know behavioral data. We put on these EKG devices to measure uh, the behavior of the heart in participants as they went through the haunted house. And we had a bunch of questionnaires. And it was a very logistically challenging and uh, ambitious study led by my colleague, Mark Anderson. Um, and what we found was not a linear relationship between fear and enjoyment, but a, you have to imagine a sort of inverted U shape. If you have, you know, thinking back to uh, um, science courses in high school, you would have uh, 
a graph with an x-axis and a y-axis. And if you have uh, fear on the x-axis and enjoyment on the y-axis, you can imagine a kind of inverted U to describe the mm -hmm. relationship. So that if people go to a haunted house and they're not very scared, they don't find it very pleasurable. Enjoyment is low. If they feel a lot of fear, they get overwhelmed and it's also not very enjoyable. You have to hit just the mm -hmm. right, you know, the sweet spot of fear is what we call mm -hmm. it. Uh, just the right amount of fear and it's enjoyable. So that was a fun kind of empirical discovery that matches my own intuition. I mean, that, that it's what I expected to find, but I didn't expect to be able to see it even in the heart rate of guests, um, this relationship. So that was a fun discovery. Do you... Are you are you still able to get your fix? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're still able to get uh, the the fear aroused. From yeah, for sure. I mean, another really interesting thing we have found is that there are different kinds of horror fans. Uh, mm -hmm. I think many people associate horror fans with adrenaline junkies. You know, people just looking for a fix, looking for a kick, looking for stimulation of the nervous system. Uh, I, I think that I might fall a little more into that right. category. Yeah, because some yeah. horror fans are adrenaline junkies. Uh, but we've yeah. also found that some horror fans are, we call them white knucklers. It's not our mm. term. It's another research team that came up with the term. But they're, white knucklers are people who enjoy horror, but they don't want maximum stimulation. They see it more as a kind of challenge in making it through a scary experience in, you know, in one piece. Uh, and I would probably fall into that sort of horror fan. I still get scared. I still get the nightmares. I still, you know, get the heightened vigilance and anxiety and the hours and sometimes days following a super scary movie. Uh, so I'm, I'm still, you know, fairly easy to scare. That's awesome. I, I'm jealous. I want a sense of accomplishment when I've finished a, a movie. Uh, sometimes a documentary or something would be like, that felt like I got <laughs> that I grew as a person watching that. Um, hmm. That's uh, well, actually, as I say that, I, I wonder how much of, of that of that same type of um, wanting to grow and and wanting to get out of your comfort zone um applies to other genres as well there it has to be with like uh, uh crime shows are so so popular and and also crime is a is a very very scary real modern uh, not even modern but it's a real threat for humans and uh and then you do the same thing you you go out worried about um you know you're you're worried some someone's some you got some email scam or something like that or or you're going to get mugged in a certain area you, the, these are all real fears that you have in real life and then you go you know what i'm gonna watch this detective show tonight that arouses a lot of the same things but in a benign and playful way but people also like movies about kind of heartbreak and stuff like that as well and sad tragic 
things happening. So that, that, that might be kind of a universal effect, but on a lot of genres. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, that's one of the wonders of, of fiction, of stories that they allow us to feel these otherwise unpleasant emotions, but to also derive pleasure from it. I mean, we watch a tragic movie and, you know, we know it's not real people and it's not real tragedy but we can still get immersed and we can still respond in a very powerful way and so uh, find enjoyment in that emotional stimulation uh, but you had on your show recently my friend and colleague colton scrivener who has done yeah. some really fascinating research on morbid curiosity which explains i think this peculiar appeal of crime shows you mentioned crime before and people are interested mm -hmm. in that sort of thing and that makes sense also from an evolutionary perspective that we evolved to find pleasure in learning about danger. And fiction is one safe way in which we can learn about the dangers of the world. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back to thinking about how our, uh, how people hundreds of years ago would have made sense of someone with schizophrenia or whatever, because there was, I, I think that like Joan of Arc, uh, I think that they said that maybe suffered from you know that's where some of those visions came from mm. so there would have been uh, there would have been potentially leaders that were tapping in with messages from the divine but then there would have also been i i guess uh i, I guess when people were maybe violent or it was a lot more maladaptive that maybe ideas of werewolves and stuff mm. came to mind. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Anyway, the listeners want to, um, listeners are going to want to hear from the person that wrote a very nervous person's guide to horror movies. What are some of your favorite horror movies and why? Right. Um, I think recently there has been, a real explosion of high quality horror movies. So it's easy for me to point to some recent movies like um, the work of Ari Aster, uh, Hereditary and Midsummer. I think are two wonderful horror movies because, you know, I'm kind of old fashioned. I want my horror movies to do more than just give me a jump scare. I like it when they also, you know, have something to convey. You know, I don't want to say a message because well, actually, I don't know. I, I want them to be about more than just creeping me out or grossing me out. I also like to feel that, you know, I learned something about myself or about the human condition. Um, and I think those movies do that. I mean, they're real human dramas, but also super scary. And the scariness is there for a reason, uh, to allow the filmmaker to really get into some of the dark corners of the human mind. Um, but I also like some of the old school stuff like um, Halloween from 1978. I think that's a great and early slasher movie um, that's very well made. And actually, most of John Carpenter's movies like um, In the Mouth of Madness, which is a sort of overlooked uh, movie from the mid 90s, but it's really one of my favorites. Mm. Uh, why don't you throw out a few other hidden gems, some overlooked right. ones? So the, the primary hidden gem is going to be in the mouth of madness. Um, what are other hidden gems? It's hard for me to kind of step outside of my own perspective and, and know what is a hidden gem to somebody who doesn't watch horror movies for a living. Um, <laughs> there's a movie came out about five years ago called The Witch. 
uh, wait, I'm not sure it's a hidden gem, but it's certainly a gem. Uh, it's set yeah. in, you know, historical New England and it's super scary. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Also, It Follows is one of my favorite horror movies. I think it's, it's from 2014 and that was sort of overlooked and it's, it's a movie where either you hate it or you love it. And I love it. I think it's very well made kind of a riff on the slasher genre. Uh, where there is this curse that gets transmitted, you know, sexually. Um, so it follows would be another recommendation. Hmm. Um, cool. Well, as uh, as Halloween is uh, is uh, approaching, is there uh, do you, do you have any particular uh, tips from a horror researcher for? getting the most out of, uh, out of Halloween. Yeah, I think, um, you might want to s- step slightly out of your comfort zone and approach some of all the, you know, scary fun that comes with Halloween. So if, if some of your listeners are, n- you know, not horror fans or, you know, not even in the slightest, uh, attracted to, scary entertainment uh, maybe take this year's halloween as an opportunity to check it out you know in small controllable doses um don't you know don't go and rent hereditary because that will mess you up uh but maybe <laughs> well, you know fine what's a good starter throw throw me a let's uh, baby steps someone that that uh, just cannot watch horror movies, but maybe they're they're dating someone new, or or their kids really want to watch something something like that. Mm. Um, uh, what what's a good starter pack for somebody? A good starter pack would maybe be some old stuff because it's easier to uphold that psychological distance between yourself and the scary elements of the movie if it's old if you know if the actors speak funny and dress in you know funny 70s clothes um so i think actually i think jaws would be a good good element in the starter pack um Mm. because it's also adventurous and thrilling and it has action movie elements and so that could be that could be one suggestion maybe gremlins that i mentioned before because it also has a lot of dark humor um and maybe something that's also funny um i thought cabin in the woods was an awesome movie it's funny and it's scary and it's a very intelligent uh kind of takedown or engagement with the conventions of horror um it's not too scary so i think cabin in the woods might appeal to somebody who's looking to use uh, to take their date on a to a horror movie, which, by the way, is not a bad idea. I mean, horror researchers talk about the snuggle effect, which is you know when uh, couples go to see a horror movie to kind of reap the the advantages of the arousal that comes from a horror movie, and then convert that into enhanced mutual attraction. Yeah, yeah. So actually, back in the eighties, a lot of slasher movies were marketed as date movies, movies to see on a date. Because, you know, a scary movie makes people get closer in the darkness of the movie theater, which is a good thing if you're on a date. Yeah, interesting. 
Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on what I know is an exceptionally busy month for you. That's true. Uh, so uh, make sure, listeners, make sure and check out uh, Why Horror, the book Why Horror Seduces, the book A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies. And uh, is it where... What's the website for recreation? The recreational fear lab. And that's uh, fear.au.dk. Okay, we'll put the link in the description and everything as well. Make sure and um, check that out and click that around. Anything uh, on the fear lab website in particular that if if listeners are going to go and check out one thing on it, something that people would like. I know you have like a little intro video yeah. that I think was. Yeah, they should check out the intro video that was made by a couple of uh, research interns I had. They did a really good job on that video. So th that would be fun. I think uh, something to check out. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Matthias. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Thanks for joining everybody. We got a bunch of great episodes uh, coming up already recorded. A bunch of authors that have books coming out. Really, really cool interviews lately talking about the... Uh, we did a One Health episode again um, recently. It was recorded. I recorded a fantastic one about um henry g a very short history of life on earth 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters super entertaining guy and uh something that we haven't covered on the show is kind of going from uh, you know the formation of the sun and then earth and then early life on earth and then uh, even leading a little bit up to today and speculating on the future, all in um, about a 90-minute episode, or yeah, I think maybe even a little less, and super, super entertaining. Have an awesome episode coming out all about the, uh, the race for the vaccine and all of the um, a, a bunch of the background and specific details and how that all came together ton of awesome episodes coming out if you could support the show on patreon.com slash shane moss absolutely need it straight up i need it to pay for the costs of this show as a reminder if you're new i used to pay for this show it used to be like part of the marketing for my tour and everything else and and could kind of uh uh, you know, I don't have celebrities on this show or anything. It's just an awesome way to learn a bunch of interesting subjects from people that you'd uh, never hear about otherwise, just a regular academics um, a lot of times. Uh, some authors here and there as well, but a lot of times um, just regular academics doing, doing research you'd never hear about any other way. And, um, and I did that. I supported this show by touring. Uh, which was about 90 to 95% of my income before COVID. Um, so I've been putting a lot more eggs in the podcasting basket since then. And in terms of when I'll be touring again, it's still a little up in the air because, but I, I can share some potentially good news um, with you. So, you know, I had 
through my career, I had uh, traditionally early on been a, been a club comedian. And then I found that to be limiting in terms of, uh, you know, doing science communication stuff and themed shows. Um, a lot of comedy clubs are, uh, you know, like kind of just jokes that don't really mean much. Uh, sometimes low hanging fruit stuff works really well. And I was able to put together and produce shows with science minded people or like the psychedelic tour that I that I was putting together as well and getting people engaged in subject matter, specific subject matter that I wanted to talk about and they wanted to hear about and finding a specific demographic. And what goes into producing a show is incredibly complicated. And it was already, things were going well, but it was already, um, you know, everything. I was doing this show Stand Up Science for a little over a year before COVID. And it was building, figuring out which cities that it would work the best in so I could go back to those cities, avoid the ones where there was a lower turnout. And there was I was still laying a lot of the groundwork at the time. Now it's like, I... I have no idea how much the landscape has changed um, in terms of things like, you know, I did a lot of Facebook ads to get the word out to people. You know, a lot of people left Facebook. I don't know uh, how successful Instagram ads are and that sort of thing. That all requires money and investment to do. So I could potentially go back to working in clubs. The money is less right now than it was and to make less money. And also I care about spreading COVID, which I guess no one else does anymore. But, uh, but I do. And, um, but, but say I didn't to make less than what I was making for more work when I can instead focus my energy on things like this and, uh, mind, the mind under matter podcast, which I absolutely love, which I'm so thrilled about and also working on some book books and stuff like that in the meantime, that I can be doing that until I I feel like next spring is when things are going to be kind of back to as normal as they're going to be um, anyway. And I, I, I think, um, you know, from some of the people that I've talked to that the this winter is going to be, um, there's going to be an increase in numbers again too because that happens in the winter, people being indoors and holidays and everything else. And so, you know, it's been up and down. Things opened up quite a bit in the summer and then they started closing down again and it's still been all over the place. Um, so one of the things that I've done to um, kind of maybe try to stabilize things, because now I... I have a studio set up. I have a second podcast that that's um, it, probably more work than this show, actually, um, or at least as much. We certainly record more hours of content in a week on Mind Under Matter, um, which you can support on patreon.com slash mindunderpod and get a bunch of bonus content. But now that also makes it more difficult to travel the way I, I was traveling. I was in about three cities a week 
um, in like 2019. And so to set up a the, you know, my studio equipment and everything everywhere that I go. And it's, uh, you know, it just adds a lot of complications. So I've been feeling out some stuff in Vegas since I, the, this, this Vegas venue or this Vegas gig that I'm doing in November, I took it back in May when things were kind of starting to look better. And uh, it'll be the first time that I've been on stage since COVID. It'll be the first and only gig that I'm doing in uh, 2020. But it gave me the idea that maybe I should explore a residency in Vegas so I could do a regular show. There's kind of a revolving door of of uh, potential audiences. So rather than going from city to city with a themed show, having a themed show in Vegas. So that's something that I've been exploring for uh, about five months now. And I have made, uh, seems pretty promising. Um, there isn't a contract, but I was uh, talking with a venue about doing something uh, really pretty spectacular and different than, um, than any comedy show uh, that I know of and, and, uh, a lot more kind of like multimedia and immersive and, um, decided that it was in a bigger room. And as I, so I, I went, I went through Vegas recently and checked out the venue, looked around and decided to be able to do a more ambitious thing in this venue that I would need to be there full time in, uh, in a smaller room that would be just less complicated, simple, straightforward, um, themed show in the meantime. And the room that this venue that I like has for that is not, uh, finished with construction yet. Cause they're delayed, uh, with construction stuff because of COVID. And when I was there about you know, Vegas is about 25% of the, uh, of, of the normal, um, clientele that would be there. And so, you know, people are, uh, you, you might, even if you're, um, some person that doesn't, isn't overly cautious about COVID thinks people are living in fear or whatever else. Well, it's still, the situation is such that there's no, you know, other that there was mask mandates um, in Vegas, but it's open. People can go there, and it's still twenty five percent of the of the usual audience. So I know when people go out to a restaurant and see that it's full, or a bar see that it's full, or something, they're like, okay, it's back. Everyone's back to doing things again. That's a sampling error. You're you're not seeing all of the people that are still. Um, avoiding indoor spaces, um, and uh, and th that changes as rates go up and down, as well. And so there's probably going to be another spike in COVID rates this winter. Hopefully, there's not. Um, I I hope that's incorrect, but there probably will be that will lower. Um, you know, consumer confidence and consumer demand, and there'll be less travel. So the aim is for next spring. I got to figure out when this, uh, when this room is going to be ready. And, um, and then hopefully that will, that will stabilize things and I'll have a, I'll be making a living again and not have to 
worry about how I'm paying my editor and stuff like that for this podcast. So even if, uh, if you haven't supported on Patreon before, even if you want to, um, help out and support on Patreon, at least until I start touring again, um, and, uh, you know, cancel your subscription or something after that, uh, that would really help out. This costs money to do. This costs a lot of time. I think it's a valuable product that I am providing. And I know a lot of people are used to just um, hearing ads and whatnot and uh, just ignoring them or putting in offer codes or whatever to support. And that's not the model that I'm using. I've tried that. Wasn't all that effective either. There needs to be way more listeners than this podcast has for ads to pay off and ads are so damn annoying and uh man it was like uh it was i turned down so many debt consolidation things this and that supplement just like shady crap that uh that you have to sell especially when you don't when you're not big enough to uh, uh to um, uh, uh, you know, choose, um, any sponsor in the world that you want or whatever. So that's what I got going on. Um, straight up. I need the financial support to keep this podcast and mind under matter going. So if you could help out, um, I would very much appreciate it. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are of course my favorites.